All right, we're back to the life of Paul. This is our third week out of five. And then we'll be back in the auditorium for the new series that you got that little card Pastor Ken will be doing starting the last Sunday in September. And back when you get in that class, you won't have to have a quiz. But here, <laughs> here, we don't slack off like Pastor Ken does. Here, here, you got and you have to take quizzes. So Paul met Ananias in Jerusalem. False. False. It was where? No. Damascus. Damascus. In Damascus. Paul's first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion came three years after that event. True. 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 He said in Galatians chapter 1, I went down there three years after I was saved and I stayed 15 days. Paul established the church in Antioch. Not exactly, do we? Because, you know, Barnabas is sent up to the church. Jerusalem is checking out. They hear the believers are there, and so they've got something going. There's kind of a church there, and Barnabas is up there, so he goes there first as representing the Jerusalem a church, and then he goes and gets Paul. Now, it certainly was important in the initial founding, but he did, it's not like where Paul just goes out on his first missionary journey and establishes himself a brand new church. It's not quite the same. Sergius Paulus was the proconsul of Galatia. False. He was the proconsul of what province? Cyprus. Cyprus. Proconsul of Cyprus. Timothy was from Lystra. I'd say true. True. That's true. Seleucia was the seaport for Antioch. No. No, it was the seaport for Tarsus. Yes, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hate to tell you this, but you may not be able to go into Pastor Ken's class. So what, we have to pass your test. And then you have. To, you may have to repeat. <laughs> you may. You may have to go back to week one. Good teacher. Oh, they tell you that when you're on Marine. Yeah. That's what they always threaten you with in boot camp. Is we'll put you back week one. You know. It's already in the back row. That that will uh, that'll keep you going there. Get off the bagels. All right, we're looking now at Paul, the letter writer. We've seen uh, Paul's early life, his conversion, his commission, the early ministry of Paul there in Antioch. Now, he actually goes (coughs) off for about seven, eight, nine years to his home place of Tarsus, Syria, Cilicia. And we'll see a reference to that in a moment. And uh, then he goes on the first missionary journey with Barnabas, and he goes to Cyprus first, then he heads north into what we think of as Turkey today, and goes into uh, Pamphylia, that's a Roman province, and then heads north into the province of Galatia, and he visits four cities there, Antioch of Iconium. Um, There were about 16 different cities named Antioch. It's kind of like Washington. There's a Washington, Mm. Michigan, there's a Washington, every every state probably has a Washington. Well, Antiochus was the name of a, the dynasty um, uh, that ruled that particular area after Alexander the Great, Antiochus the first, the second, Antiochus the Epiphanes, you may have heard of. So a lot of cities were named Antioch after Antiochus. So this is, uh, he went to Antioch in Iconium. Uh, he went to, uh, what else did he go there to? Antioch and Pisidia, then Iconium and Derby and Lystra, those four cities in uh, Galatia. Now, after he gets back, 
we're at the end of Acts 14, Paul writes this letter to the Galatians. And I'll tell you why we think he writes it at this time in a moment. Let's talk about the letter writer. What about the form of Paul's letters? Paul's letters are similar to other letters written during Paul's day, except they were journey longer. So, you know, in ancient documents, we have all kinds of letters written before Paul's time, written after Paul's time. Most letters in that time were usually 90 to 200 words in length. Paul's start off similarly. He has a, a greeting, a thanksgiving. He has, but his letters are much longer. Uh, they average about 1,300 words. Romans is 7,000. <clears> There's no ancient letter like that. So, you know, Romans is not, you know, you say it's a letter, it's written to the church, but it's really a treatise. It's almost like a literary document. So it's not quite the same. Paul used an amanuensis. That's a technical term for a scribe, someone who wrote down while you dictated. And so Paul, it seems like, uh, from what these references that I put here, <clears throat> there are many references to Paul actually dictating. In the book of Romans, Romans 16.22, the scribe takes up the pen. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greets you in the Lord. So, so everything in the book of Romans is not actually written by the Apostle Paul. There's one verse that's written by Tertius, the scribe, who wrote this down. And so um, that was the common practice, and apparently Paul used that practice. As far as the transmission, uh, the Romans had an imperial postal system, but that was only for official dispatches. So private citizens like Paul, they had to rely upon special messengers or friends who were going in this direction. You have it like with, we, when we were studying Philippians, Philippians 2, we saw that Epaphroditus was going to be sent back to Philippi with the Philippian letter. In the Romans letter, there's a woman named Phoebe who is going to Rome and she's going to take the letter to the Romans. So Paul had to rely upon people who were traveling back and forth. What's the order of Paul's 13 letters? The canonical order, that is the order in the Bible, is generally length to length. So Romans is first, it's the longest. Then 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians, then Galatians. Uh, it gets mixed up there with Titus, but uh, generally from longest to shortest. But that's not the chronological order. Here's the chronological order that most people think there's some debate about Galatians, about if it's the first letter or maybe it comes a little later. Uh, and I'll try to argue here in just a moment that Galatians is the first letter. But we don't know absolutely. But we generally know that these are the proximate dates of Paul's letters. So let's talk now about the letter to the Galatians. We're just going to say about five, <laughs> five minutes about it. We're not going to say much about it here. Um, the destination, uh, the term Galatian is a Greek term. And uh, as I say here, originally a Greek ethnic term for people the Romans call the Gauls because Around 250 B.C., some people who lived in what the Romans called Gaul, uh, they migrated over here into this area that we call Galatia today. And so they were ethnically Gauls. Uh, if you took Latin, anybody took Latin? <laughs> the second year, every Latin second year, every Latin student reads all of Gaul is divided into three parts. Julius Caesar's commentary on the Gothic Wars, and he talks about his great victories over the Gauls and so forth. Well, those that ethnic people, some of those migrated here, but as we'll see in Galatia, there's all kinds of ethnic groups. So the Romans, they built provinces like people like we did with Yugoslavia. You know, Yugoslavia, we put that together and we got Serbs or Crow, we got you know we got all these different ethnic groups and it finally come apart you know well Romans put different ethnic groups together part of this ethnic group were uh, ethnically Gauls or Galatians is the Greek term here uh, in the first century BC 
the Romans conquered this territory. So these people moved there in the 3rd century. In the 1st century, Rome was expanding. They conquered this area. They created the province of Galatia. 25 BC, it became an imperial province with a Roman governor. And so when we talk about Galatia and the book of Galatians, we're talking about the uh, province of Galatia. And we're talking about the cities that Paul visited on his first missionary journey in the southern part of Galatia. Paul didn't go, as far as we know, uh, it doesn't record in the book of Acts, he went up to the northern part of Galatia, but in the southern part here. Um, what about the date and place of writing? Um Paul wrote this letter from Antioch following his first missionary journey after Acts 13 and 14. Remember, after Acts 14, he comes back to the church at Antioch. Just prior to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, that date would be about A.D. 49. Now, one reason we think he wrote it then and not later is because of what he does not say in the book of Galatians what he does not say. So the whole point of the book of Galatians is to argue that we are saved, we are justified by faith alone and not by works of the Mosaic law. That Gentiles don't have to be circumcised and keep the law to be saved. But Paul, unfortunately, when he founded these churches, people would come in later, particularly, he faced opposition from Jews when he was there. People that are called Judaizers, as we'll see. And these Judaizers were people who professed to be Christians, but they said, if Gentiles are going to be good Christians, they've also got to keep the Mosaic Law. They've got to, the law's got to continue on. They've got to keep the ceremonies. They've got to be circumcised and, and that kind of thing if they're going to be good Christians. And so Paul is writing this letter before the Jerusalem Council. The reason we think he's writing it before the Jerusalem Council is because in the book of Galatians, he doesn't mention the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council, as we'll see, settles this issue sort of once and for all. They have a council in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem church meets, people from Antioch come, and they say, Gentiles do not have to keep the law and be circumcised. Well, Paul, if he wrote the letter of Galatians after the Jerusalem Council, would have mentioned that. <laughs> In other words, the people who are troubling the Galatians, they claim to be from Jerusalem. They claim, listen, we're representing the Jerusalem church, the apostles, and this apostle, this Paul, who is he? He's some Johnny-come-lately. We're telling you what the church in Jerusalem says. You know, we're, we're telling you the truth here. So the point is, in that letter to the Galatians, Paul does not mention the Jerusalem Council at all, which would have been just the, the, the best argument he could have made. Hey, listen, I know what the Jerusalem church believes. We had a council, we met. There's no debate here among Christianity about this issue. Paul does not mention it in Galatians. So that means, that means probably that he wrote this letter before the council, as we'll see in Acts uh, 15. Now let's talk about uh, the occasion and purpose. The problem, as I said, was these agitators called Judaizers trying to force Gentile converts to observe the law, accept the doctrine of justification on the basis of personal merit. These agitators were out Jewish outsiders who professed to be Christians. Now, from what we read in the book, they were Jerusalem-oriented. They were from Jerusalem, or they pointed toward Jerusalem, uh, they, Paul talks about this in the book, and we clearly get it from Acts 15, verse 1, as we'll see. So I say, number two, Paul writes to combat this teaching, to rescue these churches. But he finds that he has to spend a lot of time in the epistle defending his apostleship, because they're saying, this guy is nothing, man. We're from Jerusalem, and this guy, who is he? You know, He doesn't have any authority to be telling you this kind of stuff. So he has to defend his apostleship. And so uh, let's look at that, if we can. Um, I've just uh, given you there just some of the main points. I'm just going to mention a few things here because 
our shortness of our time. <clears throat> in verses 1 through 9, Paul opens with the greeting, which stresses his apostleship. In fact, the first couple of chapters, they're really stressing the, the, the apostleship, the authority of the apostle Paul to speak on this matter. He starts right off, Paul an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ. There it is, right from the beginning. He says that. Remember when we read when we looked at the church at Philippi, he doesn't say that at all at Philippi. He doesn't say Paul the apostle. He says Paul a servant. Not an apostle. He doesn't have to. They know he's an apostle. There's no question about his authority. But here it's in question, so he really brings it out. Now normally in his epistles, you'll see what's called a thanksgiving. He thanks the people he's writing to, the fact that they're Christians. He says something nice about them usually. And he has a prayer. Here he has none of that. Apparently he's so distressed by what's going on. He says, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning you to a different gospel. So this is a real problem. These people are leaving the truth for a different, which he says is really no gospel at all. So this this. When you say that you've got to be, you got to be that accepting Jesus is fine, but you've also got to do these good works. It's faith plus works. Well, that's heresy. Faith plus works, keeping the law. Now, this is why this epistle appealed so much to Martin Luther, because you can read this just like you're looking at the latter, our modern Roman Catholic Church, because the Roman Catholic Church is condemned by what we read in this epistle. That justification is by faith alone and not by faith plus works. But they say, like the Council of Trent says, the Council of Trent says anyone who teaches that a person is justified by faith alone, let them be anathema, accursed. So uh, they do not hold this doctrine. And so Luther... Uh, was you know quite interested and they wrote a commentary on Galatians and so forth because he could see what Paul is combating with the Judaizers faith plus works is the same thing you see and he saw in the Roman Catholic Church faith plus works in order to be saved so Paul says uh, he goes on here then to def defend his authority he says in verse 11 I want you to know brothers and sisters that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So they're challenging his authority. So Paul has to defend his authority here. And he talks about that in the following verses there in chapter 1. And what he's trying to show there is that his authority came directly from Jesus Christ, and he is not some convert of the apostles in Jerusalem. He wants to show that he's had minimal contact with them. His apostleship is not bestowed by them. They didn't bestow him and make him a representative. You know, he's, he's not. He's, he's directly commissioned by Jesus himself. So he starts in verse 13. You've heard about my former life in Judaism. I was persecuting the church and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't, I wasn't being taught by the apostles and all that. I was persecuting the church. Uh, but when God saved me, he says, verse 17, I didn't go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles. I didn't go there and say, I want your blessing on my apostleship. I went away to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem. And I only stayed there 15 days. And I said last week, not enough to get a seminary education. 15 days. <laughs> so he's trying to minimize his contact with the Jerusalem church. That was his first trip there. It takes us through verse 24. In chapter 2, we see his second trip to Jerusalem. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem again. So he's had minimal contact with Jerusalem is his point here. Um... And there he talks about meeting Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the, of the apostles. And he says, they received me on an equal basis. They didn't add anything to my gospel. And he says, Titus, who was with me, who was a Gentile, 
was not compelled to be circumcised. That is, they didn't say, hey, you got Titus with you, man. You better circumcise him because he won't be saved. They didn't say that. There was nothing. There was no expectation that this Gentile, who was a believer in Jesus, had to be circumcised. So that was very clear, Paul says, in this second visit. This is, uh, this is the first visit was what we talked about in Acts chapter 9, Galatians 1. The second visit he's talking about here is that famine relief visit, Acts chapter 11, when Barnabas and Paul went down in Acts, in the Acts chapter 11 to bring help to the Jerusalem church. This is when this took place. He goes on to talk about the fact that uh, he had to one time, he had to uh, confront Peter about this. He mentions this starting in verse 11. That one time uh, he had to, Peter wavered in his uh, standing up for the gospel of truth. Peter wavered. He says, Peter came to Antioch and he was afraid of the Jews there. And so when he was in Antioch and he was with his Jewish brothers, he wouldn't eat his favorite ham sandwich. He said, he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't eat that Gentile food. He observed the kosher food laws. But when he's with the Gentiles, he loves the ham sandwich, you know? And Paul says, you know, you're, you're, you're confusing Christians. You're confusing Gentiles because they look at you on the one hand observing the food laws. On the other hand, you're not, which, you know, that, that's confusing. What's necessary for salvation? And he says, I had to rebuke him to his face here. Now, later in Acts 15, after that rebuke, Peter gets up and stands up, and he's very clear about Gentiles don't have to be circumcised or keep the law. And he says, uh, verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. Now, that's a difficult thing to understand. I think the old NIV had quotation marks around that. It's probably a good idea. What Paul is saying here is that as far as Jews are concerned, you and I are sinners. Because we don't keep the law. We don't, you know, as far as Orthodox Jews are concerned, we're sinful because we don't keep the food laws, you know. We're eating those ham sandwiches. <laughs> we're not observing the Sabbath. Saturday, you, you're you not supposed to go but 3,000 cubits on a Saturday. But you probably, you may have traveled more than 3,000 cubits yesterday. You broke the law. So we're, we're, we're sinners. And Paul says... We who are Jews by birth and not sinful, sinful Gentiles, we even know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we have to put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You know, that's about as clear as it gets. Paul then kind of moves from narrative to chapter 3 where he explains in more clearly the doctrine of justification by faith. Um, I'm not going to take time to go into this whole argument here. It's just an, uh, just a continuation of what he just said here about the faith and works and the Christian's relationship, that kind of stuff. He, he talks about, when he gets into chapter 4 here, about the folly of returning to the law. See, the, the, the Jews, these Judaizers are trying to get them to go back and be under the law. and says that's foolishness. And he says, in some ways, that's just like your pagan religion. Because when you were in your pagan religion, you were under a work salvation system. You were trying to be saved by appeasing the gods, by doing good works, and so forth like that. All those systems, we have them all around us. All false religion, all anything that's not true Christianity, is really a works religion trying to appease God, trying to gain favor by your good works. And Paul says, you know, even though you're going under Judaism now, that's still like going back to your pagan stuff again because you're trying to be justified by works. Finally, in chapters 5 and 6, he exhorts them about Christian conduct, standing firm in freedom, walking in the Spirit, and so forth. And he has a concluding summary. Let's talk now about the Jerusalem Council back in Acts chapter 15. I say here, Jews believed that Gentiles could share in the promises to Israel, but only by coming through the door of Judaism. 
In the early church, those Gentiles who had come to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah had been either full proselytes or near proselytes. Okay, so a full proselyte is someone. A Gentile could become a Jew if they did certain things. They were circumcised. They were taught by a rabbi. They were immersed in a full immersion. So there were various steps they could do. But a lot of Gentiles didn't do that. Circumcision was looked upon as really disturbing in the ancient world. That is, the Gentiles, they thought that was the worst thing a person, a man could do. And they they just looked upon it really negatively. So that would be quite a step for a Gentile man. So a lot of Gentiles like Cornelius and others, they would go to the synagogue. They would listen. Lydia, the, you know, and she's called a God-fearer. That term God-fearer means a near proselyte. Someone who believed in the God of Israel would go to the synagogue, listen to the sermons and so forth, but didn't go all the way, didn't actually become a full Jewish convert. And the, and the, although the Jews looked upon them with suspicion, they still said, okay, we'll, we'll take you in. But Paul had upset the idea with his preaching directly to the Gentiles in Cyprus and Galatia. Paul's new policy for reaching Gentiles seemed to many Christians, Jewish Christians, to undercut the basis and thrust of the ministry of the Jerusalem church. You see, back in chapter 14, when Paul comes back to uh, Antioch after his first, second, first missionary journey, notice what it says, verse 27. On arriving there, back in Antioch, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. You see, that, that previous conversions of those proselytes like Cornelius, that's not quite the same thing. They see this as opening the door of faith to Gentiles. who You don't have to have any connection. Paul just goes up to Sergius Paulus, a Roman governor. He doesn't say, hey, let me teach you the Old Testament law. Let me get you a copy of the books of Moses. You just, by faith, trust in Jesus Christ and you're saved. That's all. That's what you have to do. You don't need the Old Testament law. Well, that's radical. Many people think, some people think that's why John, also called Mark, left. Because he didn't agree with that. This is a hypothesis. He didn't agree with this policy. He went back to the Jerusalem church and said, hey, you know what Paul's doing out there? Well, that brings us then to what happens in Acts chapter 15. Verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Now you're going north, but you go down because Jerusalem is higher. So you go down from Jerusalem north to Antioch. And we're teaching the believers. So some people go from uh, Jerusalem to Antioch. And so it says... This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute. So they appointed, Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about the question. They sent them on their way. They traveled through Phoenicia, Samaria. So they decided they're going to send a delegation down to Jerusalem. Let's talk to Jerusalem church, see what the issues are. Because in Paul's mind, I'm sure he thinks they're settled. He's already been there. Galatians chapter 2 has taken place. He's met with the pillars. And they didn't compel Titus to be circumcised. You know, we've got to, we need to, we want to be on the same page here, uh, together, all the Christ, early Christians here. So they send this delegation down because they're saying, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved, which would mean all the converts of Paul in Galatia are unsaved. He didn't circumcise any of those Gentiles, so all of them are unsaved, if what it says here is true. Um, so we see the uh, nature and course of the debate here in uh, capital B here uh, Peter gets up and speaks first and he has some very good things to say his uh, comments are built on the uh, Cornelius incident he says uh Verse 11, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they, Gentiles, are. So he says there's no difference in the way of salvation. Jews are saved through faith. Gentiles are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So he gets up and 
and speaks. Uh, Paul and Barnabas do talk about their first missionary journey here um, um, in the beginning here. Um, in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas told about what God had done among the Gentiles. And then, uh, verse 13, James. James is the uh, half-brother of Jesus, uh, the writer of the epistle to James, of James. And he seems to have become sort of the pastor or the leader of, of the Jerusalem church at this point. So he gets up and kind of summarizes what they have said. He argues here that Peter's ministry, he talks about him in verse 14, which led to the gospel going to the Gentiles, it fully in, car, in, in, in accord with Old Testament scripture. And he cites here in verses 16 through 18, uh, Amos chapter 9. <clears throat> no, I'm sorry. Uh, he cites uh, something here. Uh, I thought he did. He cites he's earlier. I'm sorry. Yes, he cites Amos chapter 9. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, he says, in my judgment, therefore, my, uh, here's my judgment, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat strangled of animals, and from blood. So he lists some things here that he thinks that Gentiles should abstain from. All these things have to do with idolatry. What he's telling us, if Gentiles are going to be saved, they're going to have to abstain from idolatry. All these were done in the temple at Corinth. Food was polluted by idols, sexual immorality took place, meat of strangled animals, and drinking of blood. So 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, that's what that's all about. Paul is telling these Corinthians, okay, you cannot go back to those idol temples. Can't go there. And that's a real difficulty for them because they've been going there all their life. They've celebrated birthdays there. They've had all kinds of civic events there. But Paul says that's idolatry. And that's what James is saying here. The Gentiles, the one thing they've got to do is, the big problem for Gentiles is idolatry, going to these temples. And so he says that's got to stop. So that is the decision that's made at the council. They write a letter and so forth, um, beginning in verse 22. We see the letter that they write and so forth. It says the same thing here. And Silas and Judas are going to uh, Judas and Silas are going to come to confirm by mouth what we are writing and so forth. And he lists the requirements and so on. So the decision by James, I hear, is accepted by the council. It was sent back to Antioch with Paul. And Barnabas and the leaders of the Jerusalem congregation, Judas and Silas, they take it back to Antioch, read it to the church there, of course, and uh, they're very encouraged by that. The reception is in verses 30 through 35. They read it, were glad for encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers and so forth. But Paul and Barnabas, they remained in Antioch, where they and many others preach the word of the Lord. That brings us then to Paul's second missionary journey. Um, beginning in chapter 15 and verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns that we preach the word. And uh, see how they're doing. So as I say here, this victory, this this decision would be a victory for Gentile evangelization. You know, they they could bring this back, show it to the people in Galatia and others. Say, hey, here's what Jerusalem Council decided. These people who are coming in saying they're from Jerusalem, they don't really represent Jerusalem. They're false teachers and so forth. So it frees the gospel from, from any entanglements with Judaism and Israelite institutions. Now, it didn't solve everything. The temple's still standing. They're still offering sacrifices. You know, this takes, this takes a transition before we get to where we are today. 
those Jews in Jerusalem, you know, they, they said, well, Gentiles don't have to keep the law, but we're still going to keep, you know, the temple's still there and all that. The book of Hebrews had not been written. No one had said the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Now, that's the obvious implication of what Paul is preaching, but, you know, he hadn't said it yet. <laughs> so this takes a while for this to So the Jews that are still sort of continuing on, but Gentiles are not bound by any of this. And so this was a very encouraging thing, a very helpful thing for evangelism. But then we have this disagreement. There's this sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas wants to take Mark along with him. And Paul says, no, I'm not taking Mark because he deserted us. So he won't take him. So Barnabas and Paul split up. Barnabas goes back to Cyprus, which is his home province and where Paul and Barnabas had been on the first missionary journey. He takes uh, Mark uh, back there. Uh, I say here, uh, Paul seems to have been later reconciled to Barnabas. He mentions 1 Corinthians 9, 6 in a positive way. And Mark, Colossians 4, 10, Philemon, 2 Timothy, speaks of it in a positive way. So he seems to have probably been reconciled to him, but he just for some reason doesn't trust him at this particular time. But he does take with him Silas. He chose Silas to go with him. And Silas was one of those leaders at the Jerusalem church who had come up to Antioch, you know. I say he was a very good choice here because he could speak with authority from the Jerusalem church. As Paul goes back to Galatia, he's got Silas with him, and that would be a very good thing. He has a lot of positive characteristics. Later we find out in Acts 16 he's a Roman citizen. That's helpful (laughs) when you're traveling around the Roman world. He's a Roman citizen. He apparently speaks Greek very well. He was a prophet. So he was, uh, you know, a good companion for the Apostle Paul. So it says uh, in verse 41, he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. So Paul, this time, goes back through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. Now we didn't, we didn't, we haven't heard a word about churches being founded there up to this time. Uh, but remember, that's Paul's home territory, and he was back there after his conversion. Remember, three years, he goes back there for about seven, eight, nine, ten years. What's he doing? Apparently establishing some churches, because uh, it never talks about founding churches, but there are churches there. And so, you know, maybe that was Paul or others. So they first they go there, strengthening the churches. Um, so now we pick up, you know, that's this is the second missionary journey, but... This is really the beginning of new territory. Now in chapter 16, where they really uh, start with fresh territory. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, Acts 16.1, where a disciple named Timothy lived. Mother was a Jewish and is a believer, but his father was a Greek. So uh, Paul uh, comes to uh, Lystra, we're told here, Derby, and then to Lystra. And uh, he adds him, he adds uh, Timothy to his team here in um, chapter 16. I say he was apparently a convert of Paul. Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians, my son. So he may have been converted on the first missionary journey, possibly. I don't don't know. Paul was there, remember. This is his second time or third time because he retraced his steps through there. So he's been to Lystra a few times. And so uh, his mother, we know her name Eunice from Second Timothy, and Lois is his grandmother. They were Jewish, and they had taught him the scriptures, according to Second Timothy 3.15. But there's a situation here. He says, uh, the believers of Lystra and Iconium spoke of him well. Paul wanted to take him on his journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So what's Paul doing here? <laughs> We've just been discussing the fact that Titus, he makes a big point, when Titus came down to Jerusalem, I would not allow Titus to be circumcised. But here, he's going and circumcising Timothy. Apparently the reason for this is not because uh, Paul is going back on his view, Timothy is viewed as a Jew. 
His mother is a Jew. Now, his father was a, was a Greek. But because his mother, the, the line runs through the mother, she's a, uh, he is viewed as a Greek, I mean, a Jew. But he's not really a completed Jew. He's a, you know, there's something wrong with him. So if you're going to go out on missionary service and you're going to go to synagogues and stuff and present yourself as a Jew, Paul's a Jew and so forth, then I think he wants Timothy circumcised, so there's no question. He's a Jew also. So he's doing it uh, really for missionary service. Really, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, you remember that pattern if you were here when we did 1 Corinthians, to the, uh, to the Jew I became like a Jew so I could win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like though under the law. Though I'm not really under the law when I was with Jews. See, the problem with, with, the problem with um, Peter was he, was he was giving bad signals to the Gentiles. You know, he was, he was doing it. But Paul says, when I'm with the Jews, I don't eat those ham sandwiches. I do like those ham sandwiches, Paul says. That's in the Greek. Paul says, I, I like those ham sandwiches. But when I'm, when I'm with those Jews, I don't eat them because I'm going to win the Jews. I don't want to put up any barriers. And Timothy could be a barrier to evangelization. So he has him circumcised here so he'll be acceptable in the synagogue service and so forth. Well, um, he, uh, my point plays here. Um, verse 6, Paul and his congregation traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So they're, you know, they're in Lystra, and they're traveling throughout this area. This this area is this southern Galatian area. These are the churches. They, so Paul is just visiting the churches he established on his first missionary journey. Um, then um, it says that Paul, it seems to indicate that Paul wanted to go over to the province of Asia. That would be this province here. With the capital in Ephesus one of the major cities. That would be the natural path. Okay, we've got Galatia, let's move over to Ephesus. That's where we want to go. But he's forbidden. God says, no. No, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow. They couldn't, they were prevented by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in Asia. So they decide they're going to turn north and go up to this Bithynia, this province. And they tried, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. Okay. So they come down to Troas, passed by Mysia, went down to Troas. As I say here, Troas um, is about 10 miles south of ancient Troy, a Roman colony. It's the regular port for vessels between um, Asia and, and, and Greece. Now, this is really a continental divide. This is Asia on this side. This is Europe on that side. So Paul is going to be taking the gospel into Europe here for the first time. So we see Paul now coming to Philippi. Uh, during the night, Paul got this vision. Why is it Troas? Come over to Macedonia and help us. It says in verse 9, after Paul seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And as I mentioned, um, this is the beginning of the first we section. So up until now, the author of Acts has said, they, 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 he, they. He never uses a first person plural, we or I, or we. He never says we. Now he says we. So apparently Luke joins them. So now it's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. It's at least four of them on this missionary journey. So they go out from Troas, it says, and they go over to Thamothrace. That's this island right here. They have the winds with them because they make it one day to Thamothrace, and then the next day they make it to the seaport of Philippi, which is uh, Neapolis. As I say here, it's about 10 miles away. 
Here's the ancient, what's left of the ancient harbor there at Neapolis. And they travel on from uh, Neapolis on to uh, Philippi, verse 12, a Roman colony, leading city of that district. And we stayed there several days. So they, um, they arrive in Neapolis and they go on to Philippi, um, verse 12. They travel here, they begin to travel now on what's called the Ignatian Way, the Via Ignatia. This is one of the many Roman roads. Paul seems to have traveled mainly on the Roman roads. And I don't know if you can see this, but this road goes actually down to Neapolis and to Philippi. This was a major road, 600, 700 miles, that goes from Byzantium over to Dyrrachium, so you could catch a, sh- a boat going over to ship going over to Rome here. So Paul traveled along this major road to Philippi, Amphibolus, Apollonia, Thessalonica, and uh, going all the way from Byzantium. That was the name of the ancient city. That then it was renamed by the Emperor Constantine, you know, in the fourth century, Constantinople, and uh, it became the capital of the Roman Empire, really. He moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople, where it uh, remained there. It's uh, it's still the headquarters of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, it remained there until 1453, when the the Muslims came, in, Ottoman Turks came in and took it in 1453. Uh, I was telling Pansy there was this song when I was a real small boy. Yeah. <laughs> now, I know Ron knows it very well. <laughs> Istanbul used to be Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> that was 1953. About the yeah. Yeah. It was the four lads. I had to look that up. But I was it, was, it, it was a gold record. A gold record. It's Istanbul, not Constantinople. So that was the name that the uh, Turks called it anyway, Istanbul. And so they just... They kept calling it, they called it Istanbul. They didn't, I think the West didn't start calling it Istanbul until about 1900. But they made this song in 1953 because that's the 500th anniversary of the fall of Istanbul in 1453. And uh, the, the church there still calls it Constantinople. They still. Can you sing it for us? I could. <laughs> I could. <laughs> I could. But I have to have my guitar. (laughs) So Paul is on that road as he's traveling, even from Neapolis, until he comes to Philippi. (coughs) Here's what remains of Philippi. As I say, it was named for the father of Alexander the Great, who named the city. I took the original name, Crenides, changed the name, named it after himself. It was famous in 42 B.C., the site of the victory of Mark Anthony and Octavian over Brutus and Cassius, the killers, the murderers of Caesar. And in honor of that, it became a Roman colony with many veterans moving in there. It was located on this Via Ignatia and so forth. So it was an important city. Here's the remains, what remains. That's like a forum. Remember, these Roman cities are laid out normally in a rectangle with a forum with columns and so forth. Um, there would have been columns all around and so forth. Uh, Philippi. Well, now we see the conversion of Lydia. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city to the river. They go outside to the river. And uh, they meet there because there's no uh, synagogue. A synagogue was supposed to be formed when there were ten Jewish families. But there's no synagogue, apparently, here. There's not enough Jews. She's a God-fearer. She's one of these people who is not a full convert, but she's attending the synagogues and so forth, believes in the God of Israel. So Paul is there, and he's speaking to them. This Lydia, a woman of some substance and wealth, she's a worshiper of God. She hears the message. She gets saved. Her household, they get saved. They're baptized. And they go to stay with her 
uh, there while they're at Philippi. And then they uh, meet this demon-possessed girl. One day when they're going to the place of prayer, we met a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money. And she kept saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. That's probably kind of confusing. I think that's why Paul is upset about this, uh, because this phrase, the Most High God, as I say, was used for the God of the Old Testament. He's called Yahweh is called the Most High God. But it's also the name used for Zeus, or Jupiter, the Roman child. So it's kind of confusing. Who exactly is this Paul representing here? That he's the Most High God. So Paul cast out this demon, and then the owners are really upset because it says they, their hope of making money was gone. So they're trying to stir up this anti-Semitism. There was a tremendous anti-Semitism in the Roman Empire. And uh, they took them to the magistrates. They made these charges and said, they're advocating customs, verse 22, that are unlawful for us as Romans to practice. So they're advocating illegal religion is what uh, the these these business guys say. We hey we we're, you know they're doing something illegal. So they join in the attack. They strip them. They beat them. They flog them. They throw them into prison. This is uh, supposedly. Don't know for sure. This is the traditional site. Looks like it. Maybe be a prison there, where Paul. Uh, and Silas. So Timothy and Luke were not, but Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. And we're we're all familiar with that story, particularly. Um, what happened there? They sang, they pray at midnight, earthquake comes, cells are open, <coughs> and so forth. The jailer comes in and says, you know, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved and your household. So verse 33, it says, at that hour, night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. That's a verse that our Presbyterian, Episcopal, and Lutheran friends love (laughs) because they believe in infant baptism. And it says right here, the text says, he and all his family were baptized. Obviously, he had infants. Now, the text doesn't say that, but obviously, <laughs> that's what they say. Obviously, this man had infants, and Paul must have baptized those infants. No, it doesn't say anything about that, that they had infants at all. In fact, it says very clearly, the jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before him. He was filled with joy because, verse 34, he had come to believe, he and all his household had come to believe. So it looks like everybody who was in his household, could believe, were capable of belief that Paul baptized. So this is not a verse. There is no verse in the Bible that says infants were baptized. You have to assume it. You know, in the New Testament, you have to take a verse like this and say, well, obviously, this guy had a, you know, a one-year-old child and Paul baptized the child. But there's no direct evidence of anything like that. So... The next day, you know, basically the magistrates come. They come, uh, they send some people. The magistrates send the officers to release them, verse 35, and say, hey, get out of town. We're letting you go. And Paul says, wait a minute, verse 37, they beat us publicly. They beat us publicly without a trial. Even though we are Roman citizens, he and Titus, and threw us into prison. Now you want to get rid of us? No. Let them come and escort us out. So why is Paul doing this? Probably, because sometimes Paul just leaves town in the middle of the night. you know. Probably because he doesn't want to give the church a bad name. He doesn't want, he doesn't want to just leave town and then those Christians are looked upon as a real problem. Now we know from the book of Philippians, when we studied that, that Paul mentions that that the Philippians are undergoing persecution from the Roman authorities, just like he is in Rome. So apparently this Roman persecution continued on, but he's trying to put a stop to some of it right here by saying, wait a minute, what you did was illegal. We weren't doing anything wrong. And so 
the officers reported this, verse 38, they were alarmed. This was illegal. They came to appease them, escorted them out of the city, and then they left. They went to Lydia's house, and they encouraged them, and then they left. And they go on then to Thessalonica, verse uh, chapter 17. They travel first through Amphibolus. Probably don't stop there. Apollonia, about 30 miles, 30 miles, about 100 miles to Thessalonica. And they went on this via Ignatia. Thessalonica is the capital of Macedonia here of the province, so an important city. And uh, he went to the synagogue. And on the Sabbath, on, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Jesus, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, if you read the rest of the narrative, it just goes really quick. Some Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out. They couldn't find them. They dragged Jason before the officials. They said, these men are causing trouble. Jason has welcomed them. They're defying Caesar's decree. It all happened so quickly. And it says, when they heard this, the, the crowd officials were thrown into turmoil. They made Jason and the others post a bond and let them go. Verse 10, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Barnabas away to Berea. So if you read the account of Acts, it just happens really quick. And it only says, the only time reference is three Sabbath days in the synagogue. I, doubt, I think Paul was there longer. Paul, we're just That's the only time reference we have. But there's good reasons for believing Paul was there longer. Uh, we know that Paul engaged in gainful employment. He mentions in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians he worked. And, you know, three weeks is not a lot of time. He could. He left a thriving church. It takes us three years to think about establishing a church. <laughs> Three, three weeks. Even the great apostle, three weeks is a, is pretty pretty hard to imagine. You've you've established a church, and it's you know it's and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in First Thessalonians one nine, we read Paul says, "You turn from idols to serve the true and living God." The most of the church at Thessalonica were pagans. <clears throat> well, Paul spent three weeks in the synagogue. When did he reach these Gentiles? You know, and all that kind of stuff. So. Uh, he received gifts from Philippi. We read in the Philippian letter <coughs> when he was at Thessalonica, at least twice he got gifts. So it sounds like he stayed there a little longer. And uh, I think that's the case. Here is uh, Thessalonica cannot be uh, excavated because uh, there's a large city. This is what they think the ancient city looked like. We know a little of this because they excavated a bus station in about 1962 and they found this. <clears throat> this goes back to a little after Paul, but we assume that this is the site of the city that Paul was there. There's an amphitheater and so forth kind of telling us what it is. Let's close here with this last thing. Paul goes on to Berea, Acts chapter 17, about 50 miles uh, away. Um, as soon as at night they sent him to Berea. He goes to the Jewish synagogue and so forth. The, the Bereans were of more noble character. They searched the scriptures. But then some Jews from Thessalonica came and stirred up trouble. <coughs> the, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. So Paul comes to Berea. There's a modern city there, so... You can't really see much. They've excavated part of a Roman road there that obviously the modern kind of road was built on top of. So they send Paul to the coast and they escort him, it says, to Athens. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and left with instructions <clears throat> for Timothy to join Paul, join him as soon as possible. Let's stop here. We've gone over here a little bit, and we'll come back to this next week. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul and uh, those who were his co-workers who brought the gospel to Europe. And ultimately, through that means, it came to us.
and we know that this is part of your plan for spreading the gospel throughout the world. Thank you for the fact that we were privileged to hear and through the work of your spirit to believe. Help us to appreciate that day by day and give us a desire to see others come to Christ in the same way we did. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.